Cam Clifford, I'll be doing the um, Bible reading for today. If you have your own Bible, free, feel free to turn to Mark chapter 3, verse 735, or it's on the inside cover of the handout. So just before this passage, um, Jesus has just healed on the Sabbath, and now a large crowd is following him. So Mark chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, to keep the people from crowding in. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means son of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down to Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, He has an, an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. Thanks, Clifford. You'll find an outline of the talk on the opposite side of the piece of paper to the, uh, where it's, the passage is printed out. You may find that helpful. One of my occasionally watched TV shows is called Fool Us with Penn and Teller. Anybody seen it? So Penn and Teller are some of the, the greatest musicians, uh, not musicians, magicians. <laughs> Yeah, in uh, Vegas anyway, I'm not sure about the rest of the world. And they have this TV show where other uh, budding magicians come along and they try and fool Penn and Teller. They try and pull off a trick that Penn and Teller can't explain. 
Like when I saw recently somebody turned a $1 bill into a $100 bill. Now wouldn't you love to be able to do that? Except we don't have $1 bills. $1 coin into a $100 coin. I don't know how. Anyway, he did it. It's in the US. They can do anything there. Anyway, the, the whole assumption of the show, if you dig a little bit deeper, is that you can explain everything. There's nothing you can do, nothing anybody else can do that is truly magic. It's all just sleight of hand. Nothing is unexplainable. If you can look under the bonnet, you can work out how they did it. And so some people, when they look at the miracles of Jesus, suggest that they're just magic tricks like that. Jesus just knew how to trick the crowds. You know, he walked on water, but he didn't actually walk on water. He knew where the sandbar was. No, he didn't. You can trick people. But others explain Jesus' miracles as mistakes. That is, people back in that time, in the Dark Ages, were superstitious and gullible and primitive, and they believed in evil spirits and were inclined to see the supernatural under every bush. And there were probably some reports of Jesus doing some unusual things. Maybe he was a good doctor, and they sort of grew the Chinese whisper style till people were talking about miracles and supernatural. And that sort of explanation of Jesus was given a massive shove in the 18th century by a guy called David Hume, who was a Scottish philosopher of almost no renown at the time. Uh, but he asked this question, which is more likely, that a true miracle happened or the reports about the miracle are unreliable? He said, just think about your experience. Have you experienced true miracles? Well, it didn't seem like many of you had when Hannah asked the question. Have you ever had heard an unreliable report? Well, you follow Facebook, don't you? You've heard them all the time. So which is more likely that a true miracle happened or the report is unreliable? And his obvious answer is the report must be unreliable. Therefore, don't believe any reports of miracles. And his argument has been very influential. And it's half right, I think. It's actually right for us to be sceptical about any unusual events and people reporting things. If your Facebook feed reports some sort of levitation or somebody with an amputation suddenly regrowing a leg, be sceptical. Ask hard questions. But his argument begs the question, couldn't some reports be of real things, of real events? Could some reports not be accurate and believable? The basis of his argument is called induction. Inductive argument, an inductive argument used badly in his case. Mark, who writes about Jesus, reports some extraordinary actions by Jesus. Now, he doesn't call them miracles. It's actually very hard to define what a miracle is. He talks them more about healings or the results. There was a man who was paralysed and now he can get up and walk in front of everybody. A man who had a, 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 a shriveled hand, but now his hand is whole. It can do what it couldn't do before or casting out demons from people. Now, it's clear that something is happening. Something extraordinary and unusual is going on because it draws the crowds. Verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. A large crowd from Galilee followed him. First of all, just from the region around where Jesus is. But when they heard about it, verse 8, what he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Now, Jerusalem and Judea are about 100 kilometres away from where Jesus is up on Lake Galilee. Idumea is more like 200 kilometres. And they had to walk to get there. That is, they're hearing rumours of things happening and people travel that sort of distance to go and see him. And it sounds a bit like Ed Sheeran, doesn't it? 
Except Jesus is not in, in, in the stadium. He's in Corrigan somewhere and people are walking out there, walking, not driving, to see Jesus, this phenomenon that needs some sort of explanation. And central to what is drawing the crowd is his healing. Imagine you heard rumours that somebody could heal any and every disease and you're dying of cancer. What do you think you'd do? You'd get there, wouldn't you? You'd do anything to get there. You'd get your children to carry you there. You'd hire a donkey and somehow get there if you heard that there was some hope of cure. And that's what's happening. In response to the crowds, Jesus gathers some of his disciples aside and he chooses 12 of them to be with him in verses 13 to 19. They're no longer just to be part of the crowd of followers, but like an inner circle who see and hear everything he does from the inside. But he also calls them to be with him so he can send them out to preach and he gives them authority to expel demons from people. Jesus is extending and expanding his own ministry beyond what he can do physically. But this is part of a pattern that's emerging in this account by Mark of Jesus. An emerging confrontation with Satan and demonic powers. It begins right back in chapter 1, if you've got a Bible. Jesus is uh, baptised. He begins his public identification and ministry as the Son of God, the Messiah. And what happens immediately? Does he go to Jerusalem and start preaching for him? No. He's driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for six weeks or so. An unusual way to begin your ministry. It seems like it goes long enough... That real resistance is there. He doesn't cave in at the first, on the first day like I would. And then Jesus begins his ministry, in, which includes ex- exorcisms. He goes to the synagogue in Capernaum and he begins teaching there. And there's a man there who starts to cry out. He says, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God, a man possessed by a, a, a demon. And what does Jesus do? He just says, shut up, get out. And the demon does. And the people are stunned, they're amazed that somebody could do that to a powerful evil spirit and liberate somebody from that sort of power over their lives. And he's silencing them all the time. Whenever they're there, shut up. Not just get out, but shut up and get out. And we see that in chapter 3, 11 uh, to 12. Whenever the, the impure spirits, the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. They're compelled to worship him and recognise who he really is, the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell anyone. He doesn't want the spirits spilling the beans. He wants to open the door, open the curtain in his own time, in his own way. And he authorises his 12 disciples, the apostles, to drive out demons. Now for many of us, the talk of demons is very strange. It seems like there's hundreds of people possessed by evil spirits. And we tend to either dismiss that as superstitious, primitive nonsense, it's really just mental illness or something like that, or we think, well, if it was happening then, it must happen today as well. Let's find a few. But let me just point out one thing, two things really. The first is, when God promised that Israel would come under his judgment because of their idolatry in the Old Testament, one of the things he said would happen was, the land would be full of demons. And that's what we see in the time of Jesus. He wasn't normal, he was actually abnormal. Secondly, to accuse them of being primitive is actually a naive form of cultural imperialism. It's to think they were stupid and I'm clever. 
But, but we know that they distinguish quite clearly between mental illness and evil spirits. They had a healthy scepticism about miracles and things like that, as we'll see as we go. Now, the Jesus phenomena actually cried out for explanation. The sick are being cured, the demon-possessed are being liberated, something is happening, the crowds are gathering, they know something's going on. But how do you explain it? Well, our passage, three explanations are given. One is from the evil spirits, who might know a thing or two. They say, you are the son of God. But Jesus won't encourage their testimony. He shuts them down each time. The second is from his own family. You see that in verses 20-21. Jesus entered a house again, a crowd gathered. So he and his disciples weren't even able to eat. He's, he's so crazy busy, they're not even getting, getting uh, meals. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. They went to arrest him, for they said he's out of his mind. He's mad. Their brother, their son, he's popular, but he's an embarrassment. He, he, he's, he's crazy, they say. He's unbalanced. He's become one of those glazed eyes fanatics. Literally, he's beside himself. And so they come to arrest him, to take him home for some rest, to save the family from further embarrassment. And today, claims that God might be at work doing miracles, or that Jesus did them, are sometimes dismissed as just the ravings of religious fanatics who've gone over the top. They're crazies. And if you say someone's crazy, if they're mad, you can ignore them, can't you? You don't have to take them seriously. You can dismiss them without looking at the evidence. But there's another explanation. The third one is from the delegates from Jerusalem. You see that in verse 22. The teachers of the law, that is, the educated theologians of the day, like the ones who graduated from university, they come from Jerusalem to have a look. They want to check Jesus out. They don't dismiss him as mad. They come and investigate. And they reach a conclusion. He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. He's not mad. He's bad, thoroughly bad. Now, Beelzebul, we're not quite sure exactly what that means. It could be translated Lord of the House, Lord of the Flies, Lord of the Dung. It, it, it's, it's a sort of negative thing. But the next phrase tells us what they think it means. It's by Satan, by the prince of demons, that he's driving out demons. He's possessed by Satan himself. He's in cahoots with Satan. He's working on his side using satanic power. A couple of things to notice about this. The first is, they don't deny that Jesus is doing something supernatural. To say it's satanic power is not a natural explanation. It's not a, a trick like Penn and Teller. And these are his opponents. These are the sceptics. These are those who've come up to find something wrong with Jesus. They say, he's doing something that needs explanation. And historically, it fits with other evidence we know outside the Bible about Jesus. The Jewish Talmud, for example, which was written by the Pharisees after the life of Jesus, records that Jesus of Nazareth was hanged at, uh, on Passover Eve for practising sorcery and leading the people astray. Now, the Pharisees were no friends of Jesus. You read the passage in the Talmud, they're trying to explain why it was right to crucify Jesus. But they say he was a sorcerer. This is exactly the same as this explanation here. He was doing by the power of Satan. They were forced to give a non-natural explanation. There's real power. There's an explanation needed, but if it's real power, whose is it? 
They land on Satan's power. That's whose power it is. Well, Jesus responds to their explanation of satanic. And he shows in verses 23 to 26 that it's illogical and perverse. Verse 23, he called them over to him and began to teach them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. So he's using analogies. But you can work it out, can't you? If Satan is coming along driving out his own demons from people, well, that's absurd. Satan wouldn't do that. How can Satan fight against himself? Imagine Australia and New Zealand go to war against each other. That's not hard to imagine, is it? Whether you're in New Zealand or in Australia, you can imagine that. So we go to war and the Australian Army and Navy and Air Force is is throwing everything at the New Zealanders. And then Malcolm Turnbull says, let's change tactics. I'm going to set the Australian Army against the Australian Navy. Start fighting each other. Now that's, that's crazy, isn't it? No one's going to do that. Because if you do that, you're lost. You're lost before you start. You're undermining yourself to start a civil war within your own forces. Well, that's what they're suggesting is happening with Jesus. He's, Satan is starting a civil war against himself. Well, Satan's not going to do that. It's illogical. But it's more than illogical. It's so illogical, it's perverse. Verse 26, if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand his kingdom Uh, Sorry, his end has come. His kingdom has come to nothing, which obviously isn't true. You just look around. There's still many people under the power of Satan. No, it's so illogical, it's perverse. Why do they attribute to Satan? Because there's nothing evil about what Jesus is doing at all. Why resort to such illogical explanations? It must be a way of avoiding the obvious. Because if there's real power at work, and it's not Satan's power, whose is it? They're driven by their own ideology, by their pre-commitment, by their prejudice, not by the evidence staring them in the face. And then in verse 7, 27, Jesus gives his own explanation, his own plausible explanation, I think. He says in verse 27, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Do you see the analogy? So imagine I walk past your house in the middle of the day and I know you're at home. And I see some shady character walking out with your television and putting it in his car. Walks back in, walks out with your laptop and puts it in his car. What conclusion do I draw? I guess I could draw the conclusion you're inside saying, yeah, take it, take it. (laughs) That's unlikely. Now the explanation must be that he's already overpowered you. He's tied you up. Because only when he's tied you up can he just walk out with your possessions. Otherwise you'd stop him, wouldn't you? You'd be there locking the door. You'd be there trying to thump him up. You'd be there trying to tie him up. Now, if he's just walking out freely with your stuff, he's been tied up already. You've been tied up already, sorry. So do you see what Jesus is saying? What he's telling us? If you see Jesus expelling demons from people, what conclusion are you going to draw? Someone must have overpowered Satan. Because Satan's not going to sit by and just let that happen. Just say, you're welcome. Please take them. Not when he's possessed them. Now there must be a stronger person who's already come and bound Satan and is now plundering his goods. Not yet destroyed Satan, he's just tied him up. Satan is left bound and impotent. That is, Satan's kingdom is crumbling. God's kingdom is breaking in as people are liberated. 
from the power of Satan and the power of evil. And everyone there is seeing it with their own eyes in the exorcisms and the healings. Jesus is not in cahoots with Satan. He's the stronger man who's neutralised Satan's power over people and is now liberating captives. They're experiencing the benefit of his victory and his rule. The Jesus' miracles aren't some party trick to show off, but they're the, kingdom, they're the kingdom of God, real, advancing into enemy territory. That climaxes in Jesus' own death and resurrection, where it looks like evil sort of wins. It, it gets a, a hold again, but actually secures the final overthrow of Satan. He has an end. And then notice the conclusion that Jesus draws from that in verse 28. Truly I tell you, when you see the word truly I tell you, sit up and take notice. That's when Jesus tells you something that he really wants you to understand and take to heart. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every blasphemy they utter. See, if Satan is bound, if Jesus is plundering his goods, the main plundering is forgiveness. The exorcisms, driving demons out of people, is really just a picture of something more significant, more profound, more important. Forgiveness. Because the ultimate power of Satan over you and me, over every human being who inhabits this planet, is to bring us under the condemnation of God. The just and right condemnation. So it's not simply that he deceives us, he then accuses us before God. In fact, the, the name Satan means the accuser. That's what he does. He gets us to sin and we comply, we jump, and then he throws it in our face before God so that God destroys his own handiwork. But Jesus, from the beginning of his ministry, has been dispensing forgiveness. Remember the guy let down through the roof? The paralysed guy? And Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, liberating him from the power of Satan. And Jesus says that the implication of his victory over Satan is forgiveness is offered to all, even, even someone like Levi. Because when you're forgiven, Satan's power is broken. So imagine you walk out of here and Satan gets his, his fangs into you and he tempts you and, and you do something horrendous. Well, does that destroy you? Does that drive a, a, an unbreachable wedge between you and God? Not if God forgives you. Not if Jesus is offering forgiveness to everybody. Ah, it's, it actually has no significance. It doesn't matter. It does not destroy us. All the sins will be forgiven humans. It's hard to believe all can be forgiven sometimes because some of us have things on our conscience that are so deep, that are so raw, that are so unforgettable, we think we cannot be forgiven. The shame you brought on your family, your suicidal thoughts, your sexual abuse or incest or whatever it might be. And we say, no, that, that, that can't be forgiven. I, I could never feel liberated from that. Jesus says all the sins that humans can commit can be forgiven. With one exception. Did you pick that up in verse 29? But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of eternal sin. Does that freak you out? I suspect some of us are sitting here now thinking, have I done it? Did I ever blaspheme the Holy Spirit? And you're racking your memory to think, did I ever sort of say, oh, Holy Spirit? Or something like that. <laughs> if I did it once, that's it. It's unforgivable. 
Well, we need to think a bit harder about what Jesus actually means. How do we unravel this? Because it really is scary. The first thing uh, to tell you, because you can't notice it from the English translation very well, is that when he says at the end of verse 29, they are guilty of an eternal sin, that sounds like there's an action you did. But actually, there's no an in the original language. It's just guilty of eternal sin. That is, guilty of sin that has eternal consequences. So it's not just one action. And we see that in the way in which verse 30 explains it. Mark tells us that Jesus said this because they were saying and continued to say he has an impure spirit. It's not just that they said it once and that's it, they've done it, straight to hell. No, they were saying. It's an unusual tense in the original language. It's an ongoing, hardened, set attitude. And even as they have that attitude at the moment, Jesus is warning them. He's saying if you continue in that trap, if you keep walking down that path deliberately, determinedly, then you will commit the unforgivable sin. You'll be guilty of eternal sin. Thirdly, what's the Holy Spirit got to do with it? Have you noticed that in verse 30, it's the first time the Holy Spirit's mentioned in the whole passage. Blasphemy against the Spirit. And then Mark uh, explains it by saying, they were saying he has an impure spirit, an unclean spirit. As I think what's going on is, they're saying Jesus is doing these, these events, these incredible things with satanic power. But if Jesus' exorcisms and healings are done with the Spirit's power, then they're calling the work of the Holy Spirit the work of Satan. And that is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I think that helps us make sense of the unforgivable nature of this sin. Because at a merely psychological level, if every time I see God at work, powerfully, goodly, because that's what God does, and I say that's the work of Satan, when will I ever see the work of God? I've sort of locked myself out. I've already decided I'm going to dismiss it as evil, perversely, stupidly, but that's what I'm doing. And I just dig myself into a hole I can never get out of. See, that sort of person will never beg for forgiveness. So you might picture this, the unforgivable sin as, you know, I've done it and I realise it and I come to God and I beg God for forgiveness and God says, no, sorry, can't forgive that. No, no, this sort of person who's committing the unforgivable sin will never beg for forgiveness. They will keep walking down that track of perversity. Which tells you something. If you're worried about whether you've committed the unforgivable sin, you haven't. Do you understand that? Because the person who's doing it is not worried. They're just blithely, proudly pressing forward. If you're worried you've done it, you haven't. And I hope that's a great comfort to you. But let's not dismiss it as if Jesus is not giving us a real warning. Because there are perverse explanations of Jesus. I've met them around UWA. Sit down and talk with them. And talk to them about Jesus and they say, oh, no, it must all be a fabrication. You say, but listen, I, I think the evidence is actually quite plausible. Would you look at the evidence? No, no, it's all a fabrication. They've already decided what the evidence tells them. They've already decided that there's nothing to see there. Well, that's the sort of perversity that these, uh, these people are showing. And Jesus warns us. It's good to have healthy scepticism. But it's also right to have an open mind. Open mind to the evidence, to what's really there. But what's the purpose of an open mind? Well, it's like the purpose of an open mouth. What's the purpose of an open mouth? 
to shut on something nourishing. You just keep it open all the time, you'll starve to death. The purpose of an open mind is to shut on something plausible, something convincing, something true and right. And then, in a really funny way, verse 31 resumes the story that started in verses 20 and 21. (laughs) Jesus' family arrives. They set out from home, town, probably Nazareth, to come down to near Capernaum, out by the Sea of Galilee. And, And in the meantime, this other thing happens, and then Mark resumes the story. His mother and brothers arrive. Standing outside, they sent someone to call him. Now, in Mark's Gospel, Mark often uses this, uh, this structure, it's called a sandwich structure, where he begins a story, he interposes another story, and then he finishes the first story, like two bits of bread and some meat in the middle. And whenever he does it, there's a, there's a clear connection between what's in the middle and what's in the, in the bread, in the sandwich. There's a, they mutually illuminate each other. And we've seen something of the opposition of those who look at Jesus and say, no, Satan, Satan, evil, bad. Well, his family are different, but they're infused with the same sort of spirit. So they come, verse 21, standing outside, they send someone to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Now, Jesus can't refuse his family at that point, can he? It would be rude to do it. Incredibly rude. He'd bring shame on his own family uh, if he doesn't stop what he's doing and go out and meet his family. It'd be shocking. What does he do? Verse 33, Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. And he looked around those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. That's more than rude. He disowns his own family. He says, I'm creating a new family, those who do God's will. And at this point, his family clearly are not doing God's will. These people are gathering around him. That's what God's will, gathering around Jesus, coming and listening to him. That is, the kingdom Jesus is bringing takes precedence even over our families, our our blood relatives. If his family wants to shut it down, then Jesus will resist his family. He hasn't become a wild-eyed fanatic With everything out of proportion. No, he's got things perfectly in proportion. Because the kingdom of God is bigger and more permanent than family. Yes, your family you're born into. It's incredibly important. You live in it for 80 or 90 years if God is kind to you. But the kingdom Jesus is beginning is eternal. They think he's mad. I think he's the sanest person I've ever come across. They think he's unbalanced. I think he's convinced that this kingdom of God is real. Evil is being pushed back. The power of Satan is being crushed. Sins are being forgiven. People are being liberated. And he knows that he's the pivot. He's central to it. He's the key to the kingdom. So what conclusions can we draw? Well, many people have described Jesus as the man you can't ignore. The things Jesus was doing and saying demand an an explanation. See, normal events don't demand an explanation. Your lecture starts at 10 o'clock in the morning. And you expect it. You don't need to explain that, do you? You just go there and it happens. You start to feel hungry at 1pm. And you get your lunch out when you see you and eat it, which you're free to do. Or if you're a bloke, you get hungry at 11am, don't you? That's normal. It doesn't need an explanation. Nobody walks up to you and says, why are you hungry? I don't understand. That's just normal. It's only abnormal, unusual things that need explanation. Like... 
a Russian double agent gets poisoned with a nerve gas in the middle of England. That's a man's explanation. Well, so does Jesus. His healings and exorcisms, those there saw it happening with their own eyes. And they didn't say, oh, nothing to see here, just, just go home. No, it demanded an explanation. Some said he's mad. Some said he's bad. What's your explanation of Jesus? C.S. Lewis, who was a, a guy, English professor at Oxford, who was converted to Christianity later in life, he, he wrote this. I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a thief. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. We've seen today Jesus doing his thing, healing, expelling demons, offering forgiveness. Some of them are stunning. They demand an explanation. When Jesus is asked, his explanation is actually bigger than you might have expected. It's to do with Satan's downfall. Satan, who's held sway over the lives of people, taken ownership and control of people's behaviour, Deceiving all of us, bringing us all under condemnation. Well, Jesus is binding him and overpowering him, plundering his house and his kingdom. He's bringing liberty to those under the power of Satan, starting a whole new family that will last for eternity. The kingdom of God, the world under new management. Why does Jesus do miracles? Has he just discovered some superpower and he can't help himself? No. Was it so people would believe his message? Well, no, although that happened a bit. No, it's the sparks of the conflict between Jesus and Satan, begun in the desert, climaxing at his cross and resurrection. Jesus coming to liberate those, obviously under Satan's power, a sign of liberating all others, offering forgiveness to everybody. So what is your conclusion about Jesus? Have you come to terms with the evidence? Have you seen what he did and what he said? Have you recognised that at least in my mind, it's absolutely convincing that Jesus did things that needed explanation. Was he mad? Was he bad? Or is he the Son of God? Thank you.